Hey, so I imagine you're listening to this podcast because you're an artist yourself and you want some insider tips, insights, and general advice from artists you respect. One aspect of the business we sometimes discuss on Best Advice is rollout strategies. When you're dropping new music, you want to give it the best chance of getting heard. It's all about reaching the right listeners at the right time. That's why our team at Spotify for Artists built Marquee. Marquee is a marketing tool for turning listeners into bigger fans of your new music. With Marquee, you can send full screen recommendations of your latest album, EP, or single to the right fans as soon as they open the app. Listeners who see your Marquee are twice as likely to save your tracks, making it a better way to develop your audience than trying to drive streams from social media. To find out more, go to artists.spotify.com slash marquee. And they're off here. John, this is one of those first 400 meters where you just sort of want to get into the race. It's a little bit downhill here. The first this is ESPN's coverage of the 2015 Fifth Avenue Mile. It's a race that's run down the east side of New York Central Park, down Fifth Avenue, of course. It's that iconic non-metric distance of Roger Bannister, one mile. Coming at the end of race season, the event attracts some of running's biggest stars, names like Roberry, Simpson, Willis, and Lagat. But two years ago, arguably the most interesting mile wasn't the fastest. It didn't come close to breaking four minutes. On that cool fall morning in 2015, before the elites took the course, Vidal Bielacor ran a seven-minute mile. But when Vidal did it, he was 80 years old. The second-place finisher in his age group that year finished a minute 20 behind him. Vidal is what most of us can only dream of becoming at his age. He's fit, not frail, and he runs faster than most Americans can run at any age. But greatness like that comes at a price. Welcome to Human Race, a show about runners and the world of running. Today, we'll visit Witold Bielakor, a Polish immigrant born before the start of World War II. Witold's run nearly his entire life. When he was young, it was a way to survive as a kid in exile during the war. Later, it became his path to notoriety as a promising athlete and a national running coach in Poland. And when he got older, running was a part-time passion. It was an obsession, something he did as an amateur in Queens, New York. Today on Human Race, we're going to take a journey through the life of one of the most remarkable runners around. You'll get a glimpse into the methods of a master running coach, see what it takes to achieve greatness, but also the perils of being super competitive and obsessed with being the best. And they'll be dancing. Here's producer Mervyn Naganios with the story of Vidal Bielakor. Vidal lives in a lovely stone house on a quiet street in Queens, New York. He says he's 5'10 and weighs a trim 135 pounds. He's proud to say he hasn't lost an inch of his height and says he still fits into the same suit he wore when he came to the U.S. nearly 45 years ago. Every step of Vidal's life made him the elite runner he is today. You fought a lot. You started out your life fighting, and so that's made you a better runner. Is that right? That's right, yes. I was ready, and I'm still ready to cope with any difficulty. It's an instinct of survival. Vidal learned how to endure pain and fight for survival when he was very young. He was born in Poland in 1935, four years before the start of World War II. 
He grew up on the battlefront between the Germans and the Russians. To him, fighting to make the best of a war zone isn't much different than fighting to be the best when running a race. I don't care how bullets, whatever, I have to avoid them and secure myself or my family. That's a fighting instinct. That's the same as I see when I put the number on my chest. Running. Then I'm from start on, I don't think about anything. I see this finish line and whoever I, I want to fight. That's my instinct from childhood. When I asked Vittled about his first memory of running, he said it was grabbing rations off the bodies of dead Russian and German soldiers. Just to survive. Just to get, sometimes soldiers were killed, so we scroll and we took the food from him. Rational food, they always had a rational food. So we just scroll watching around with the kids and then we got them and go back with the with trophy. The Russian officers, though, were afraid the children were also taking intelligence papers off the German bodies. The last guys were commissar with a big gun, like clean this food. Boom, boom, they had that gun. So they were chasing us because we were afraid that we take our kids instead with the food. Is this both Russians and Germans would chase you? No, the German didn't have that tactic. The Russian had. But you would always run, it sounds like. Yeah, I was, I, no, you, know, you cannot walk straight. You have to run quick as much as from, from place, hiding place to another hiding place. Swiped army rations were Vittel's first running trophy. It's the origin of Vittel's fighting competitive instinct. Today, Vittel's basement is full of the spoils of that instinct, that drive to do his best. The basement is a runner's treasure trove that also silently pays tribute to the sacrifices Vittel's family made for his success. The shelves along the walls are lined with trophies. Vittel doesn't know how many, but it looks like hundreds, medals, vases, all sorts of hardware. On the walls are posters signed by world-class runners who visited Vittel's home and news clippings from the New York Times and Polish newspapers that feature Vittel. On the floor underneath a table, I notice some distinct robin-blue-colored boxes, each large enough to hold a basketball. Th th those are, are those Tiffany boxes? Tiffany. I've been with Tiffany. <laughs> it's, it's a one, two, three, four, five, six, at least seven, eight and Tiffany boxes. And there's more over there. Yes, 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 more than that. <laughs> What's inside them? What's inside them? Yeah, we can find out. Oh. The boxes are filled with crystal awards from the New York Roadrunners. At one point, Vittled had won Runner of the Year for his age group 14 years in a row. Then the and winner is like Oscar. <laughs> you stack them like it's normal normal plates in the in the cupboard so in the what kitchen. What I can do? You see, the moment of receiving is, is most important. When I stand, now they don't do it, but when I was standing there on a podium and holding it up, that was my moment. That was my moment. Fiddles had so many of these moments, and here's the crazy part. These piles of trophies and awards, Vittled won every single one after he turned 40. We wander the basement, rummaging through accolades and keepsakes. Then, Vittled pulls out a map. And my father was right here someplace, uh, Siberia, here, in this region. That's where he was sent. 
and uh, and we were someplace here. That's even closer to Moscow than I thought. Yeah. Fiddle was born in Poland in 1935, just before the start of World War II. Four years later, Germany invaded Poland from the west. Sixteen days after that, the Soviet Union invaded Poland from the east. Fiddle's mother was a teacher and his father was a school principal. The Russian occupiers deemed his educator parents a threat, so they sent the family, including Vidal and his older brother and sister, into exile. They, along with Vidal's uncles and aunts and cousins, were shipped to the Russian-controlled portion of modern Ukraine, just a few hundred miles from Moscow. They went from being well-to-do to living in a dirt floor, thatched roof, mud hut. I asked Vild about his first memory. It was when in, in, in early morning my, by K, uh, my father was taken away by KGB. It all happened without any warning. All the sudden raid, 10 minutes to get ready, and uh, he took me uh, and hugged me and said in Polish, because at home we were talking Polish. A KGB didn't know Polish. Mój synu, nie martwcie, ja wrócę z powrotem. My son, don't worry, I'll come back to you. And he never came back. Vidal was only three years old. Last Vidal heard, his father, Alexander, was teaching other prisoners in a camp in Siberia. By then, World War II was in full swing. Fiddle's family was exiled to the eastern battlefront between the Germans and the Russians. One week, they'd be under the Germans. There'd be fighting. Then, a few months later, they'd be back under the Russians. Back and forth like a rising, receding tide. This went on for years. Warzone or not, Fiddle and his brother were kids, and they found ways to have fun. They fashioned bows and javelins and fought many wars with mostly Ukrainian kids from surrounding villages. They used tactics they'd learned from watching real soldiers fight. The neighboring villages were often far apart, sometimes five miles. The walking was a waste of time. So we're running to have fun. What's going on in the next village? And then we have to go another five miles back. They, that's a mean of, of, of commuting. Meanwhile, Vidal's mother, Malvina, was fighting to find a way out of exile. When their village was controlled by the Germans, she worked for the telephone operations. They helped her get a pass paper from the German authorities, which let the family travel away from the battlefront. The journey through the war zone took months. First, they traveled by horse-drawn cart along with a cow for milk. Then, by train and car, through Kiev. Then through the outskirts of Poland. Eventually, they arrived in Krakow. In Krakow, the family managed to survive until the Russians drove the Germans out of the city and, later, until the end of the war. Vidal's mother started sewing to make ends meet, and Vidal and his siblings went to school. The fighting had stopped, but Poland still wasn't free. It became a satellite of Russia, the Soviet Union. Poland went communist and became part of the Iron Curtain. The communists were determined to show their superiority to democracy and the West in every way they could. That included athletics. Poland started mining for athletes. One day, every year, 
the country would hold races. In the spring, so-called national run, the one kilometer. Every school had to run at one kilometer, one particular day. Everybody had off, even people from worker, that one as a nationalistic approach. And I won every race I entered. Fiddle made it to the top race one year. And the regime pegged him as a promising athlete. So then, then I was scouted for the club. And that is how it started. At one of the top running clubs in Poland, Fiddle nurtured his competitive drive. He competed in the track league in events like the decathlon, the 100 meters, and middle distances. He was promising, but that wasn't enough for his mother. She was practical. To her, passions like running and art, Vittel was quite a good artist, were too unreliable. Go to engineering, she said. So Vittel became a mechanical engineer in heat transfer systems. The communist regime, though, had other ideas. They noticed that Vittel had a knack and love for coaching. We have enough engineers, they said. What we need are athletes and coaches. So the government set him up with what could have been a cushy job at a local institute. Name was engineer, inspector engineer, but there was a phony, phony title. I was kind of designated inspector and don't touch him. <laughs> what the regime wanted, the regime got. Vittel worked the first part of his day as an engineer. The second part was spent at one of Poland's top athletic clubs, Krakowia first as an athlete, then as a coach. Fiddle could have coasted at his engineering job, but he couldn't stand doing mediocre work. Instead, he took on the full responsibilities of a regular engineer. He collected two salaries, one as an engineer, one as a coach. Things were going well. He met his future wife, Ursula, on a tramway, and two years after they met, they married. As a coach, he trained national team runners. One finished fourth at the 68 Mexico City Olympic Games in the 4x400 relay. More than one became a national champion. Vittel trained by example. He wasn't the fastest, but on the first run of each day's training, he'd lead the pack, no matter what the weather conditions. They were afraid it snow like this. I said, no, we don't. I said, who doesn't go? Who? Name one. I'm going first. Whoever wants, follow me. The rest don't come anymore. What will be your choice? Your choice would be to run. Because if the coach is running and you're supposed to be better than the coach, you run. Fiddled always wanted to be better than his runners at something. Push-ups or maybe chess. He says it kept them motivated. It also satisfied his own competitive streak. Vittled had a knack for pushing and motivating others. One time, a promising runner came to him and said he wanted Vittled to coach him. Vittled couldn't figure out why other coaches didn't want to take on such a promising runner. Now tell me how, is your, how come your coach doesn't like to coach you and some other too? Ah, you know what, I'm smoking a cigarette. So that's why they don't like? And he said, yes. How was your coach? Ask me, I say, no, I don't care. Keep smoking. The only thing, smoke a good quality cigarette. And Poland was no money for good quality. 
Camel or Chesterfield. American, they're the best. And you can smoke as much as you want. He looked at me, confused totally. Okay, tomorrow the first training. When they met the next day for training, we went to the woods, hills. We went there, we went here. I'm sitting on him, piggyback, and go up. Wait, he's carrying you? He was carrying me. And then I, up and down, jumps. And, and I was doing most of them with him, carrying him. All kind of drills I have developed. Then after two weeks, he's coming to me, Coach, I want to talk to you. What about? I'm quitting. I mean, that's a pity because you have talent. No running, smoking. <laughs> With this training, I cannot smoke. <laughs> and he became a national champion later. He found out with this training, he can go ahead. But smoking is holding him back. He found out by himself. I didn't do any rhetoric to him, any explanation to do it. But see what happened. Fiddle pushed his runners to their limits so they'd achieve their potential. Along the way, they learned a lesson Vittle already knew himself. If you wanted to accomplish something extraordinary, you had to focus. You had to shed anything that might hold you back. Vittle was becoming a more prominent, successful coach, but he felt constrained. He bristled under the political repression, and Vittle wasn't the kind to keep his mouth shut. That and the poor economy stifled Vittle. So he decided to leave Poland. He told me that, that we are going for a vacation. That's Vidal's wife, Ursula. I thought that we are going like for three months. And happened to be, it is much, much longer. He didn't tell anyone he was leaving for good. Not Ursula, not his mother, but... My mother knew that's for good. She felt it said, no, you don't go in the winter, Christmas, out of country. This, you are for good. She was crying. You cannot cheat. No. Your mother that knows. Was, that was a heartbreaking decision. Nevertheless, he put Ursula and some belongings in a two-cylinder car, a lawnmower, Fiddle calls it, and left. They were young and in love, and Western Europe felt vibrant and full of opportunity. When we closed the border, it was a night from uh, Budapest to Vienna. All of a sudden, I see so many lights on the street. In Poland, it was dark. Then uh, when I went to the store, I said, gosh, they have everything, and we had a shortage. How come? And everything so clean, and people were so elegant. Their travels made Ursula realize that Poland was a poor country, so it didn't take long for her to come around to Vidal's plan to leave Poland for good. After a few months, they settled in Vienna. Vidal was 35. He stopped coaching and running. Vidal and Ursula were focused on making a better life. Their first winner, Vittled had to salvage scrap wood from construction sites, chop it, and burn it to keep their small apartment warm. Was life difficult when you first moved to Vienna? Not at all. Even because, because you said that you were chopping wood, that wasn't hard. Sure, that was that just was what, fun. That was fun. Of course it was fun. 
you know, like always, uh, when I was chopping the wood, I did it to perfection. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Even chopping wood, Vittled found ways to quench his desire to be the best. Life then wasn't perfect, but to Vittled and Ursula, it was an adventure. We're, we're happy. We're young and happy. In Vienna, Vittled and Ursula made a very good life for themselves. Vittled found a job as an engineer. Ursula, who was a school teacher in Poland, found work as a salesperson. They bought a nice apartment. They made friends. They went dancing occasionally and traveled a lot to Germany, Italy, France, and Switzerland. They had their first child, a daughter. Vittled and Ursula loved Vienna. Vienna, though, was only 50 miles from Czechoslovakia, the Iron Curtain. That was too close for Vittled. So after three years in Austria, Vittled moved his wife and their toddler daughter to the U.S. as political refugees. Once again, his wife thought it was temporary. Five or six years, Vittled said. We'll make some money, then we'll come back to Vienna. Vittled, though, again knew it was permanent. It was 1973. His family had to start all over again. Vittled was determined to find the best job he could. He wouldn't just be a street sweeper or a janitor. He wanted to be an engineer. Life in the U.S. was harder than in Vienna. Neither Vittled nor Ursula spoke English. They didn't know anyone when they arrived. The first place they lived was in a hotel in downtown Manhattan. It happened to have a lot of prostitutes, and once or twice they were nice enough to watch his young daughter. Everything in the U.S. was foreign to them, especially since they couldn't afford to live in a nice neighborhood. Once, Ursula was on the phone with a friend from Vienna. Now in Vienna, everyone dressed in suits and nice dresses, even to the grocery store. Her friend was curious about American fashion. He asked me, listen, I would like to know how you are dressed. And I said, listen, I am dressing like I used to in Vienna. Nice. But I see people around me on the street, they are wearing jeans and, and any, any slappy different kind of dresses or suit from Monday till Saturday, unless they are going for interview. For Ursula, the transition was shocking. She'd gone from a cosmopolitan, comfortable life in Vienna to living in a poor neighborhood where she didn't understand the language, culture, or even the clothing. In time, Vittled learned to speak English and eventually got a job at a big firm in New York City. They moved out of the poor neighborhood into a nicer one. His family grew. He and Ursula had a second child, a son. Vittled was so busy fighting to make a life that he hadn't run in six or seven years. One day, he saw a race in Flushing Meadows Park. Vittled was used to races being for 12 to 15 elite runners. Here, there were about 100 runners of all skill levels. Vittled figured, I can do that. One year later, at age 45, he signed up for the master's division of a five-mile race in Brooklyn. What was it like to run that first race? Very emotional, a lot of butterflies. And additionally, I didn't want to be a jogger behind the, the leaders, so I went with the leaders. But then they, I found a hard way that I don't belong there. How did you find out? 
<laughs> and legs were like like a cement. <laughs> they were anchors to the ground, <laughs> and no breathing. <laughs> then one of the better over forty runners, Walter Brown, passed Vidal. And he kind of looked at me and he took pity on me. I said, "You man, you better slow down. Walk, joke for a while." He gave me advice, and I said, "Gee, he's right." Fiddle jogged for half a mile and finished fine. He'd had fun, but fun wasn't good enough. He wanted to be the best, so he joined a running club. They go um, just jogging. They go home and they go for beer, and that's it. That wasn't good enough for Fiddled. The former Polish national coach wanted the best training possible, something hardcore, like he was used to. So Fiddled created his own group. At first, it was just amateurs from around Queens. That's the way we started, and all of a sudden they started to make a progress, and all of a sudden people boom, 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 yeah. Something going on in Queens. They were coming from New Jersey, from Manhattan. Word started to spread that there was an Eastern European Olympic coach out in Rigo Park. Vittled wrote a couple articles about his methods, and in his words, his methods became catchy. His Eastern European training emphasized long runs, bounding drills, and infrequent racing. Local runners burned out from frenetic training plans full of speed work and frequent races. They found Vittel's conservative approach very effective. Vittel started coaching his team, unpaid for hours at a time. He met them after work on Wednesday evenings and on weekends. His wife Ursula took classes and became a gemologist and later a travel agent. She would spend the evenings and weekends at home with the kids. It wasn't easy. I have to take care about kids, food. Those times, even I didn't have any cleaning lady I have to do by myself. Everything by myself. Fiddle didn't just leave Ursula with the kids for training. He also attended his runners' meets and ran his own races. He was running at least 10 hours a week and talking on the phone with his team at night to go over training plans. Vittled was in his late 40s, and his dedication to his runners paid off. The team grew and grew. He couldn't coach more than 40 people, so there was a wait list. It was a natural selection. Yeah. Uh, if you can uh, run uh, six minutes a mile continuously for five miles, which I was running, mm-hmm. but, but if not, if you cannot run faster and you are 20 years younger, <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> Can't run faster than your coach, can't join the team. At first, the group was called Vito's Runners, which made it sound Italian. Then, at his team's insistence, it became Vittold's Runners. Vittold's workouts were painful and demanded sacrifice, but his runners tended to do quite well. You just had to follow Vittold completely. Here's an example, Ross Donahue, a local runner and middle distance Villanova standout was skeptical of Vittold's training. But after stagnating for four years, and with the encouragement of his girlfriend, who was training with Vittold, Ross submitted to Vittold's regime. I'm yours. Whatever you do, I don't care. I accept everything. I said, that's my condition. After Ross gave in to that most important condition, Vittold demanded something especially difficult. I said, Ross, for half a year, no racing. I have to transform you into my way. But I have a race, I have a race. I said, no, go and race, but then don't come back to me. This is your system. You have to go my system. As Vittled likes to say, there is no democracy in training. Ross remained suspicious of Vittled's foreign methods, 
but they started working in the woods near Vittled's house. After six months, Vittled finally told Ross to run a race up in Boston, a 1K. Ross didn't think he was ready. He hadn't run a winning time in all his training. He didn't feel fast enough. Just go, said Vittled. And after the race, call me, whatever it is. Back in Queens the day of the race, Vittled forgot Ross was running and went to bed. Midnight, I have a call. Vito, Ross. I say, Ross, what's happened? You injured? No, you saw my gun. <laughs> what did you do to me? I said, I said, what happens? Half of the race, I was dead last. Then, then what? Then after the half, I didn't feel anything. I just went ahead and I won a race. <laughs> now we celebrate, we have a banquet. <laughs> I say, congratulations. That's mean you understood what we're doing here. How come I did it when I didn't do any speed? Speed training or not, Vittled's methods had worked. Ross had won the race. Later, with Vittled's help, Ross finished second in the 1500 meters for the 83 Pan Am Games, was an alternate for the 83 World Championships, and ran the 84 Olympic Trials. Vittled demanded you follow his plan because he believed he knew the best way to achieve your running potential. Giving in completely to his methods, his way, that was part of the price for success. Fiddled wasn't getting paid, but he was a respected coach. During this golden period in the 80s, Fiddled was sought after. He chatted running with marathon legend Bill Rogers. Craig Masbeck, future head of U.S. track and field, visited training. He coached Bill Martin, a finalist for the 1980 Olympic team that never traveled to the boycotted games in Moscow. Khalid Kanuchi, who currently holds the American marathon record, came to his basement to talk running. Why did they come visit you? Well, they wanted some talk and uh, advices or whatever. We were friendly and uh, they kind of appreciate me. And I didn't drag him here. <laughs> they, they came here. <laughs> Fiddle's own training paid off too. He raced and beat Masters champions and record holders like Charlie Wimberly and Earl Fee and even George Hirsch co-founder of the New York City Marathon and publisher of Runner's World. Vittled ran all kinds of races, from miles to marathons, on the track and on the road. His specialty, though, was the middle distances. Vittled kept racing and training and winning in his 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s, filling his basement with trophies, crystal, and hardware. If you, if you stop winning, will you keep running? Well... At my age, it's very hard to stop winning because nobody, <laughs> there is no competition. <laughs> That's my answer. Yeah. <laughs> With all that success, it should come as no surprise that during the running group's peak back in the 80s, Nike approached him about becoming a coach. He stayed an engineer, though, working at the top of his field. He designed complex cooling systems for nuclear power plants around the country. The coaching life, the instability, seemed too much of a sacrifice for his family. What Vittle didn't fully appreciate at the time was what sacrifices his family were already making. More on that, and we'll spend a morning with Vittle and his runners to see firsthand what world-class training looks like. That's after the break. Vittled has accomplished a tremendous amount as a runner. 
And he's gathered up all those lessons he's learned along the way and built a world-class training system. So what does 50-plus years of running knowledge combined with intense passion and a competitive spirit look like on a day-to-day level? Here's Mervyn with the next chapter of Vittled's story. On a cold Saturday morning this winter, I met Vittled at his home in Queens. Good morning. Good morning. He's wearing dark-colored leggings and a long-sleeved shirt, ready to go for the day's training with his running team, Vittled's runners. I'm here to run with his team and to learn a bit about his health habits. Now, when I think about an elite older athlete, I imagine routine, regimen, discipline. Vittled, though, is surprisingly unregimented. Vittled usually gets up around 8, but sometimes he gets up later. The times he goes to bed varies, too. Sometimes if I go dancing, I go midnight. If a robotic way, the fun is over. So whenever you get up... Like a German, bam, 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 bam. No. No need to be a German. No, marschieren, marschieren, no. They like it. That's their way. Yeah, yeah. But it's not my piece of cake. Mm -hmm. That lack of regimen applies to his diet as well. Do you stay away from sugar or do you eat a lot of beef? I don't stay from anything that's good. I like beer. I like good wine. Then the good wine is expensive, so I cannot drink too much. (laughs) You just make sure you buy expensive wine. Yeah. He trains it hard and trusts that if something isn't good for him, his body will tell him no. You know, like the runner he coached in Poland who had to give up smoking. On days that he runs, though, he does have a morning routine. When Vittel gets up, he has a glass of juice, orange, fresh squeezed, or maybe apple. But he doesn't eat anything. Then he does a quick workout. Today it's 30 push-ups, some arm circles, stretching, and some jumping twists to loosen up his hips. Then he laces up his shoes for his morning run. What kind of shoes do you wear? Whatever I can afford. Today it's an older pair of New Balances. I looked it up. You can get a pair like them for about 60 bucks online. And with that, Vittled throws on a jacket and we head out the door. We drive a mile or so to Vittled's secret parking spot near Forest Park in Queens. When we arrive at the meeting spot, there are 14 of Vittled's runners from all over Queens, representing all the different ethnicities and cultures of the borough. Seven languages here. (laughs) True. There's a marketing director, a construction worker, an architect's consultant. There are a number of retirees. The youngest today is in her 30s, and the average age of the group usually runs around 55. Fiddle's easily the oldest runner in the group, but as always, he leads the pack. The air is cold and the ground is frozen in spots. We run through the woods, sticking to the uneven dirt paths through the trees. Fiddle still uses the Eastern European methods he used in the 80s. Training, broadly, has three key components. At its core are longer, slower runs at 60% speed. Cruising, as Vittled calls it. As we run, that cruising pace is easy enough that for the first 10 minutes or so, I can keep up, even though I'm loaded with a bag of recording gear and holding a mic. I drop off, and 20 minutes or so later, I meet the team when they loop around the park. Here I see a second characteristic of Vittled's method the strength or bounding drills that get interspersed between long runs. Fiddle leads them in exercises like deep knee bends, jumps, and push-ups. Then he makes them run loops up a small hill while he waits at the top. Down. Three times around, okay? All right. 
As they circle, Fiddled picks up a large tree branch from the side of the path. What is this for? Just in case if somebody is too weak. <laughs> As the runners come up the hill, he holds his stick out in front, like a gate, and forces them to jog, high knees in place. He runs forward a few steps and then repeats. The whole thing feels like a scene out of the Rocky movie. You know, the training montage. No fancy equipment, just use what you've got around. Fiddle tosses the branch down and it's back to more running and drills. There's some creative ones on a chain link fence on a bridge. Afterwards, I get to see a third concept of Vittle's training. It's a test, a bit of fun. When the runners are exhausted, Vittle lets them do a mile or so loop at their own pace, at about 80% speed. Something where, finally, the runners get a little adrenaline going. It's winter, so the sessions are more focused on building muscle and recovery. The training gets more intense and focused as the race season approaches. It's obvious, though, that Vittle is still demanding. So much so that one runner who's in his late 50s says he's in the best shape of his life. Also, it's still not a democracy. Vittel's word is law. And some drills haven't changed since Poland. Did you ever have somebody run with you on their back here in the U.S.? When I piggyback? Yeah. Oh, yeah, right here. Here. Yeah. Here. We did that with you? Yes. Yeah. on his back. Yes. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. From the back of a group, a big guy, a parcel service driver, pipes up. You're, you're the biggest guy here, and he ran with you on his back? He got me on his back. <laughs> like this, like from here, you know, short distance, but he got me on his back. You get hints of it, how hard Vittle would drive himself and his runners. One runner tells me that even just 10 years ago, things were much tougher. Back then, if you made an excuse, Vittle stopped talking to you. If you didn't show up once, you were out of the group for good. I talked to one of the original Vittles runners, Richie. He's been running with Vittles for over 30 years. In that time, Vittles eased up. He's not as hardcore as oh, yeah, he no, used to. No, it wasn't hardcore. No, no the original when he was real, workouts are much tougher. So wh why, do you, why, do you, why do you think that changed? No. Uh, Pretend I, like he's not here. <laughs> I know. I think he wants to keep the runners on the team. <laughs> Otherwise, everybody would leave? Yeah, everybody would leave, yes. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> These days, the group has tipped away from elite training and more towards camaraderie and support. Vittled and the group have aged. They still train very, very hard. They still want to win as a team and individuals. But it's not as brutal as before when the group was more runners in their 20s. For example, injury prevention has become even more important. Regardless, if Vittles in town, he shows up to train, even if it rains or snows. Back in the day, though, that commitment to his runners, it was hard on his wife Ursula and his two kids. It meant that a lot of the time, he wasn't around. I tried to be mother and, and father, like, <laughs> in the one person because they miss him. Vittled may not be as hardcore as he was when he was at his peak, but he still devotes a lot of his time to running and training, and that means less time at home, raising his kids, helping out around the house, duties that fell onto his wife Ursula. In a minute, we'll talk to Ursula about the sacrifices she made so Vittled could pursue his running career. And we discover Vittled's deepest secret. That's after the break. Stick around. 
Fiddle has given up a lot to be the runner he is today. The day has only 20, 24 hours a day, 24 hours. There is no way to extend it. For example, before he rediscovered running when he moved to the U.S., he played ping pong and chess to satisfy his competitive spirit. He gave those up because he was still making a place for himself here. These days, though, there's something he pursues with nearly as much passion as his running, and that's dancing. Tango was a particular challenge. When he stumbled on it almost 20 years ago, you know, back when he was 60, he tackled it with the same competitive fire he does today. He considers all dancing cross-training. Dancing is helping for control of my movement. And it helps with his balance. Dancing moves him in ways, literally and figuratively, that running can't. When Vittled learned it, he roped his wife Ursula into it, and she fell in love with it too. Now they're so good, they get hired a few times a year to teach dance on cruise ships around the world. I asked if he could show me the tango with Ursula. They were nice enough to oblige. Ah, sorry. <laughs> I'm in the way, sorry. I watched as Vittled and Ursula glided around the small space in the living room as one. They looked like the archetypal, happy, older couple. Things seemed to have worked out so well for Vittled, and I wanted to know if Ursula felt the same way. When they take a break from their dancing, and with the music still playing, I asked, was all the sacrifice, leaving her homeland Poland, leaving Vienna to come to America, was it worth it? Yeah, it, it was worth it, but, but not exactly coming to the United States, because we had a very good life in Vienna. And Young, everything. irresponsible. Yes. And challenging. Yes. That doesn't yeah. sound so bad. <laughs> yes. And we had everything what we needed. Yeah. yeah. Coming here, we started with a, starting living in a poor neighborhood. I was very disappointed. She was. I know. Yeah. I was very disappointed. I wanted to go back to Austria. Remember, yeah. Vittold hadn't told Ursula that leaving Poland was permanent or that leaving Vienna was either. When I'd first heard their struggles, not speaking English, living in a poor neighborhood, the stories about the prostitute babysitters, it sounded quaint, almost charming in a struggling immigrant kind of way. It reminded me of my parents' stories of finding their place in the US. But for Ursula, her new life was shocking. It was a far cry from their lovely Viennese apartment, their good friends, the three-piece soup culture of 1970s cosmopolitan Vienna the language and culture that she understood, a place where she fit in. But she followed her husband. W was following hard for you? Th because it, it yeah, was... because I, I, I lost my identity. I finished university and uh, practiced uh, history and I was a high school teacher. Ursula has a master's in history, but teaching in the U.S. was so different that she was forced to give that up. That's why she became a gemologist and a travel agent. In fact, Ursula missed Vienna so much, she returned for a few months while Vittled stayed in the U.S. And I came back because I loved him. He was my husband, and I said, oh, I, let me stay with him. Uh, yes, yes. We're standing in Vittled and Ursula's living room. Vittled's leaning against the piano. Ursula's standing six feet away, and I can feel the tension. He was going to work, and he was taking care about his running. I was working. I was taking care of a house and two kids. That is very absorbing. But he was out of this. He gave money and, oh, do whatever you want. <laughs> but 
time, time. Yeah. The, the, uh, one day is only 24 hours, and you have to spend yeah. practically one-third sleeping. Yeah. It surprised me. Ursula inadvertently said the same thing as Vidold when he talked about giving up ping-pong and chess. But here, Ursula was saying it about Vidold's running and spending time with his family. He couldn't do both at the same time. And now we have the results, because I cover everything else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, he yeah, has yeah, spent yeah. time on his hobby. And now we have a fighting, yes. <laughs> <laughs> no, not a fighting. This is true. Yep. and Ursula have been together for more than 50 years. They met when she was 16 and he was 28. He was a successful national track coach and she was a student. Um, when I met him, uh, uh, I was a teenager and it was my first love. <laughs> And and I had a and listen yes and I had a uh, for a long long time I had a big pink glasses on my eyes. Those rose or pink colored glasses meant Ursula gave Vidold a lot of leeway. Yes. <laughs> yes. Everything was accepted. Yes, everything was accepted. <laughs> but I think it's. Now it's a little bit different. Where do, you, where do you have this pink glasses? You don't have anymore. No pink glasses. You didn't no, no. see. They were invisible. <laughs> because whatever you said, whatever you did, it was, yes, sir, wonderful. You are so good. I don't see anything <laughs> else. Do you, do, do you still see him as that now, or is that changed? No, I, cha- I change. I, I don't have any more pink glasses, but it was just recently. <laughs> Just recently? Yes, after so many years of marriage. Just recently I said, no, not anymore. I have to stand on my two feet and see what's going on. You, you don't have the rose-colored glasses on. The, 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 what is it that keeps you then now after that? Because I'm curious for my, my own self. Do you know? Because in general, I am strong. Mm. But in entire life, he's stronger than me. And he just trying to keep me under under his position. There is no so-called general democracy. Okay, now you now now he talks. Now he talks. No, no, I'm voting. Why not? Yeah, yeah. Freedom, yeah? Of course. Yeah. Of course. Of course. <laughs> it seems Vidal's single-mindedness and his drive to prove he was the best permeated his relationship and the rest of his life. Vidal had told me he'd bought the house we were standing in out of competitiveness, even though it was just above his price range, because a real estate agent told him he couldn't afford it. He fell into tango in part because a woman he was dancing with told him he knew nothing about Latin American dance. Vidal was uncompromising about achieving his full potential. He's a perfectionist. And whether it was winning a race, coaching, or making a life for himself, Vidal felt he knew the right way to get the best results. So he focused on making a living and devoted his spare time to being the best at what he loved, his competitive outlet, the thing he did to heal mentally and stay physically fit, his sacred refuge, running. I am on a different, completely different level mm. because he can give up everything uh, what he thinks that is not uh, so important, but he has to go running, doesn't matter what. 
and my priorities is different. And sometimes it's misunderstanding between well, two of them. Uh, he recently, I think he's trying to be more mild, but before doesn't matter what, he has, a, he has to go to see his runners. Uh, it was a time that we had only one car, and I had two kids at home, and I gave up going to any place because he was taking for two hours or two and a half hours car. And instead of going um, to, to visit our friend in New Jersey and, and stay over, no, because I, this is a sanctuary. He has to go. This is how I give up. Everything was... Sacrifice. Sac yes. Was the sacrifice worth it then in the end? Do you know, um, to some point, yes. But talking with kids, and I think they are going to talk with the dead, they have to express their opinion. Because very often they turn already to me that dead was missing. Dead was with, dead was with us, but he wasn't in our life. He was just next to us. I said, now I can say openly, but the thing is, uh, God. <laughs> yeah, but like, uh, like I said, uh, we choose this way and that's it. I once asked Vidald if anyone else in his family ran. No, he said. Considering what running was to his family, that's not surprising. Running was a sanctuary for Vidald, but it took him away from them, his family. And Ursula, after decades of rose-colored glasses and no general democracy, she put her foot down. And I said... No, enough is enough. Later, separately, I asked Ursula if she remembered the moment when she realized that enough was enough. It turns out it was only two years ago. She was in Europe, talking to Vidald on the phone. She can't remember the conversation, but thinks they may have been in an argument. And he asked me the question, what did you achieve? I... I was speechless. And I said, gosh. And I sat down, I took the glass of wine, and I said, wow. He surprised me. Either he is drunk, or he, is, he was talking seriously. It was painful. It was painful. Because I put everything towards keeping family together and keep children to, to grow in a proper, with the manners, with, to be educated. Vidald apparently didn't appreciate Ursula's work. It didn't fit his understanding of accomplishment. And I spoke with my daughter and she said, Mom, I told you a long time ago that you, he, you are not going to change that. He is going his way. You have to change. But I didn't listen. I said, oh, he's okay, he's okay. And I said, no, I have to change. Right now is the time, doesn't matter how old I am, but it's a time to change and to have my way right now. That's when she demanded compromise. When she got back from Europe, she confronted Vidal. And I said, listen, either we go, either split or 
or we'll talk. But we finally said, no, 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 no. We just have to talk. Those talks began getting Ursula more of what she wanted. There's more democracy in the relationship, more back and forth now, less Vittled leading from the front. They also helped Vittled appreciate Ursula's accomplishments and sacrifices. You can hear it when he talks about her now. She is very sincere and open to the, our inner situation, but nothing is for nothing, and any extreme achievement cannot be made without sacrificing the other people living together. So that's impossible to satisfy everything, like she said, they has 24 hours. That's the way it is, and unfortunately she is right, and um, she endured it. Ursula endured. And here's the thing. Vittled believes he made his own sacrifices. Vittled saw himself as an elite athlete and coach. He also, though, wanted to be with Ursula, have a family, and a stable, well-paying job. So he tamped down his competitive fire and chose to only coach and run part-time. Remember the chance to be a full-time coach for Nike? He stayed an engineer. He gave his family a stable life. All that, to him, that was compromise. The sacrifices Ursula and Vittled have made to make this life, a life so intertwined with running, they're not sacrifices many people would be willing to make. When I asked him about this, if he'd gone too far in pursuing his passion for running, as always, he had a quick reply. You wouldn't be here. Because you wouldn't be interested in somebody who has a dry approach to the subject. Uh, when you put devotion and passion into it, the obvious things results are coming. He's right. I was talking to him because of his results. That crazy fast seven-minute Fifth Avenue mile. The world, unfortunately, doesn't really listen to podcasts for stories about coming home from work and raising two kids well. Maybe it's our fault. But maybe there's something we can do about it. So let's remember Ursula and her accomplishments. Accomplishments that let Vittled be the runner he is today. Accomplishments that now Vittled better appreciates. Accomplishments that, among other things, let Vittled enjoy his grandkids. The grandkids in the framed pictures around the living room that Vittled's drawn. The ones whose toys are piled on the floor next to the trophies down in the basement. It's been a struggle, this life, and though Ursula said she wasn't angry, there was often a fierce look in her eye when she spoke. And for good reason. He never said, I love you, till last year. Even in Polish, he didn't say? Never, never, even if he asked me to get married. That was my deepest secret. <laughs> Can you imagine? Can you... <laughs> my mom asked me. He never said, I said, no. Unbelievable. To Vittled, the facts and deeds proved that he loved her. But Ursula, she wanted the words. Those words, they're part of Vittled's new set of compromises, part of a change in Vittled after all these years. When he said it, what, do you remember what you were doing? <laughs> no, because we had a nice fight. No, no she made a scene. Oh, no, 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 no. I had no time to continue. And I said, excuse me. Fiddle takes a step towards Ursula and reenacts the scene. 
one word, I love you, <laughs> and I kiss. <laughs> and I went to do some of my job. <laughs> Even then, it's not romantic. <laughs> no, it wasn't a romantic, but, uh, but this is what I am looking for. But in for, that for, yeah. for uh, more than 50 years. Gosh, this. That doesn't seem like much. But remember, it was the first time Vittel had expressed his feelings to the love of his life out loud. Ever. Then, you know, he unromantically went back to work. It seems like, though, particularly when you dance, it seems like the, maybe the glasses go back on again. Oh, for yeah, for, yes, for just for a few minutes, for an hour, for two, yes. That's why we Yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. It is, as Fiddle chimed in, why they probably dance a lot nowadays. Those disagreements, sacrifices, misunderstandings, and revolts, you can feel it when they tango, the intensity. All the strong feelings that made their relationship what it is today. You, you have to go up and down in order to appreciate. Either you love this person or forget it, bye. Because the worst part is either, this means the worst part is zero, because you have a love or a hatred. Neutral feeling is nothing, yeah, just yeah. better go away. You want, you want either hate or love? Yes. And then you go between them. Mm, the yeah. plus and minus is an energy. Zero is not energy. Oh, there's yeah. no energy. You want energy. energy? Yeah, I always want, yes. I, 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 I think I know the answer, but I have to ask. Do you still love him? Yes, I do. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. Now, thank you for the question. <laughs> uh, he knows, he knows. And with that, Fiddle gets up from leaning on the piano against the wall, walks over, and gives Ursula a hug. Fiddle may know Ursula loves him, but in that moment, it sounded like he needed to hear her say it. And that thing that Fiddle wouldn't give Ursula for five decades, she gave it to him freely, without hesitation. That's because Fiddle's changed. A little. He is more open by talking, but mm -hmm. expressing himself. This is this what comes to me, mm -hmm. because it was a boundary. It was a, like a wall to switch the person that is more open, that takes time, but I am patient. <laughs> and I will say never is too late. Yeah, it's never too late. Never too late, never too late. Like he has since he was a kid in war-torn Poland, Fiddled continues to fight to be the best he can be. The best runner. He's working to beat seven minutes at the Fifth Avenue Mile this year. The best dancer, practicing alone and with Ursula. He's also still fighting and working on becoming the best husband and father and grandfather he can be. And, in large part because of running and dancing and Ursula, at 82, he has the time to do it. Thanks for listening to Human Race. If you'd like to see pictures of Vidal and Ursula today and when they first fell in love, visit runnersworld.com audio and look for the show page for this episode. There'll also be pictures of Vidal coaching and running. To find out more about Vidal's runners, just search for their Facebook page. Just remember, it's Vittled with a W. We'll have a link to it on the show page. 
And if you're in the Queens area, maybe you can even join them for a run. Today's episode was produced by Mervyn Naganios. The theme is by Danny Koch. It was edited by Sylvia Ryerson and Christine Fennessy. David Willey is the editor-in-chief of Runner's World and the editor-in-chief of this show. 